how we treat our neighbor is how we know who we are and how we fit into the grand scheme of things. Hi, Internet. You are listening to episode 10 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning author, a celebrated humorist, and if my social media feed is any indication right now, I'm the last person on Earth not to have Disney+. Plus. I don't know how y'all find so much time to watch TV. I really don't. I'm just putting that out there. Um, get a life, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, anyway... Change My Mind is a podcast where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things. Um, We live in an era where people seemingly rarely change their minds, even confronted with evidence that directly contradicts their ideas. Um, Right now, we're in the process of possibly impeaching the President of the United States, and he has openly confessed to the wrongdoing that he is being impeached for, and there are still people trying to defend him. Um, Not in the sense of he did it, but it wasn't a big deal, but in the sense of he didn't actually do it, even though he confessed to it. So that's kind of the era we're living in. And that's why I have this podcast, because contrary to day-to-day experience people do change their minds it is a thing that happens occasionally and i want to know why so this is a podcast where i interview people who have changed their minds this week i interviewed um a friend of mine named jeremy doan he is a software engineer out in the greater denver area um at one point in his life he would have identified as a laissez-faire reaganite when it came to economics, and now he identifies as a Marxist. Um, so that is a pretty big shift. Um, we talked a little about a little bit about what drove him to um, accept new ideas, um, which is pretty interesting stuff. Um, I will let him speak for himself. I will flip you over there right now, and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to the 10th episode of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and I'm sitting here with Jeremy Doan. Say hi to the people, Jeremy. Hello, people. Jeremy is a software engineer out in Colorado, and we are going to talk to him about economics today. The purpose of this show is to talk to people who have changed their minds about big important things the reason being that changing your mind is a hard thing to do and not a lot of people do it but it does happen so i want to know why so jeremy i i want to talk to jeremy about his uh changing views on specifically on economics um what you told me and you can correct me if this is wrong, but what you told me a few minutes ago is that you used to be something of a 
Aragonite and are steadily marching towards Marxism. Is that correct? Yeah, that sounds about right. Marching towards Marxism is catchy. I should name a rock band that or something. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> but let's um, let's talk about you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeremy. Um, well, as you mentioned, I live in Colorado. Um, currently, I live in a small rural town about an hour north of Denver. Um, I've lived in Colorado most of my life. Uh, I haven't done the math, um, but I'd say about 75% of my life I've lived in this state. Um, I was actually born on the western slope of Colorado, so a town about 30 miles from the Utah border. Uh, Grew up in a fairly uh, conservative home. Um, went to a, a you know private Christian school where we were taught very conservative uh, politically, very conservative historically. Um, and then I went to a Bible college, as one in that growing up in that environment does. <laughs> um, and the Bible college was, of course, the one that wrote our textbooks that I learned all my political and history politics and history from (laughs) and i went to that bible college with the goal of becoming a history teacher and um that's actually what i did i graduated with a degree in history education and got married pretty much right out of college i was about a year out of college when we got married and then about a year after that i started teaching at a small private Christian school in Massachusetts. And I taught there for five years and then moved back to Colorado after our third child was born um, to be a little closer to family. Both my, at that time, both my and my wife's family lived in the Denver area. And so that's where we moved back to so that we could be a little closer to them and have a little more support. And that's where things kind of went a little... I wouldn't say totally off the rails, um, but definitely not according to plan. So I had a little trouble finding work when I got back to Colorado. I ended up teaching at a school, uh, a Christian school that did a lot of um, uh, computerized learning. Um, uh, Colorado has a couple state programs where you can actually go to school online and they kind of had a system there where the kids would go to the Christian school, but they were actually learning through this state program. Um, and I worked there for a few months and then got fired. Um, I can't remember exactly why. I don't, I don't think, and I'm trying to be as unbiased as possible. I don't think it was deserved at all. I think I disagreed with how to manage the classroom with one of my teachers and probably said some things I shouldn't have and um, ended up getting fired. So that was really exciting. (laughs) Then it took me about a year to find a job at a, um, another Christian school um, where I worked for, for about a year. And then at the end of my first year there, this was around 2009 Um, my fourth child was born and literally 
three days before the school year was supposed to start, um, I got a call from my administrator saying that they did not have a position for me. And we were actually on vacation when I got that call. Um, that was on a Friday and I was supposed to be back for teacher orientation on Monday. So that was an exciting weekend for me. Um, they were able to find kind of a substitute position for me. And, but right away I decided I needed to do something different. So I very quickly tried to get enrolled in a, um, a public university because my degree was from a Bible college that was not accredited. Um, my only option at that time was to teach at a Christian school, some private school. Um, but since that didn't really pay the bills quite enough for four kids, and um, plus since those jobs were not really, there wasn't a whole lot of guarantee there. I, I, I initially wanted to get a degree from a public university so that I could get my teaching certificate and teach in a public school. Um, so I went back to school and decided to try to get a master's in mathematics. Um, but as I got into the program there, um, I decided I actually didn't want to do teaching anymore. Um, and wanted, and part of what I learned while I was uh, studying mathematics was coding. And so I decided to try to get a job as doing some type of software development or something like that. So after I graduated with that degree in 2012, um, a couple months later, I got a job at a financial technology company, which is just a fancy term for a company that builds websites for banks. And that's what I've been doing for the last seven years and a couple months. Um, let's get into it. What uh, what would you say you uh, changed your mind about? What what was what were your original beliefs here? Well, as I said, I was uh, a Reaganite um, in that the back in the day we were taught and I fully agreed with the, or fully accept the idea that, you know, Reagan was the best president that we ever had because he put forth all these, you know, he strengthened capitalism. He was against the evil Marxist, the evil communist um, over there in the USSR. And um, I, I just kind of accepted that as, well, yeah, capitalism, what we have here in America is good. I didn't really, th there wasn't really any interrogation of it at all. It was simply, this is how we live. This has helped us get all the freedoms and all the blessings that we enjoy here in the the. United States and over in the USSR and in Cuba and all these countries that have um, that have embraced more Marxist beliefs, they have nothing but poverty and oppression and all these horrible things. Um, it, it was really kind of a very simplistic, very flattened view of of history and economics. But since that's all I was taught, I just kind of accepted that and believed all, all that I was taught. And so as I went through college the first time and then became a teacher, that's, that's the view that I had. Um, mm. That, like I said, that kind of flattened out, simplistic view 
where there wasn't a lot of questioning all these capitalistic principles. Um, there wasn't a lot of questioning the type of free market economy we we lived under here in the United States. And that's what I would have taught my kids um, I, I or, or taught the kids in the school there. Um, my degree was in history, but if you know anything about private Christian schools, you really don't stick to your um, your field of study because they're almost always understaffed. Um, if you can teach a subject, then you will be teaching that subject. And so I didn't only teach history. I taught um, political science. I taught specifically American government. I taught economics. And at some time or another, I taught, I don't know how many different classes I taught. I taught algebra and geometry and geography. I did teach a physics course and I actually made up a psychology course once because um, my administrator wanted me to. Um, but kind of through whatever I was teaching, if it had anything to do with politics or economics, I would have been pushing that line that, yeah, everything about our American capitalistic system is great and we should support it. And anything that even resembles any Marxist ideology, which I, I, honestly, I never really knew much about either of those ideologies. I just knew that capitalism was good, Marxism was bad. And simply putting that Marxist label on something was to denigrate it. Um, I remember a prof one of my uh, professors in college who would talk about environmentalists, and he used to call them watermelons, saying that they were green on the outside, red on the inside, that their whole agenda was some Marxist authoritarian agenda to use environmentalism in order to take over, in order to take away our rights. And again, at the time, I didn't really have any other perspective. And I just kind of believed him and said, yeah, that I guess that's right. It's coming from my professor. And I mean, he has a PhD, so he must know what he's talking about. And he was able to present things like that. And some of the other professors I had were able to present things like that in a way that seemed very compelling to me. So I just kind of accepted that and would then parrot those lines. And, you know, to be fair, I did do a little bit of reading. Um, but the reading I did, like one of my favorite books back in the day, and I had was um, the book Witness by Whitaker Chambers. Are you familiar with who Whitaker Chambers is or was? I, I have never heard of this book or this person, I don't think. So he was a, um, he was, I believe he was an American, but he was actually a spy working for the USSR back in like the, I think this would have been the forties and fifties. Okay. Um, and he was kind of, you know, living here in the United States, um, doing the passing the microfilm type stuff to his handlers and, and doing all that type of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and he eventually defected. And the book Witness is his kind of memoir of that time. And it's been decades since I've read it. But but I remember it being a very, very compelling, very well-written book. And um, it just kind of underlined the idea that, you know, the communists are trying to ruin our freedom. Um, 
And as evidence was this guy who was actually a spy trying to steal state secrets. And I'm trying to remember if he was, was it the Rosenthal's? Were those some other famous spies um, that were trying to, if I recall, they were either them or somebody else were involved with, you know, stealing all the information about the atomic bomb back around, you know, the early 40s. Um, And I don't know if he was directly involved in that, but he was definitely part of that system to gain military secrets. And, you know, I read the book and like I said, it was a very compellingly written book and uh, the story of how these Marxists want to take over and ruin the freedoms that we have. And that just kind of solidified my idea that, yeah, these communists, these Marxists are are evil. They want to destroy what we have here. And so, like I said, when I when I taught history or politics or whatever it was, that's that's what I would pair it to the the kids that I was teaching. Um, and even while I was teaching that, I don't looking back, I don't think I had a sophisticated knowledge of either system. Um, just that simple good versus evil, bad versus good dichotomy that um, I held on to very deeply. One thing I do recall being taught, or at least being, um, I don't know if I was taught, as as it was kind of the values that were implicitly passed down from my families, was this idea of hard work and sure. this idea of not wanting to take handouts. And, and this idea of there's some almost a shame in having to ask for help or, or needing help. Um, we weren't particularly poor when I was younger, but we were kind of lower middle class. Um, there was a time in, it would have been around 85 or so, um, maybe a little after that, where my dad was, uh, he, he worked in advertising almost entire life. Um, after he had worked at a newspaper, he'd got laid off. And so, um, he needed to work, he ended up working at I think J.C. Penney as a salesman for several years. Things were, I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but I things were pretty tight. There, there was a time that our family was on food stamps, but we never really talked about it. And it was kind of always this shameful time in our family history. And I, I don't think it was food stamps, but I have memories as a young kid of going to some place in town where we would get like milk and cheese and other basic products that I think it was some type of government giveaway thing. Um, but again, it was like a shameful thing that we had to need help that we couldn't take care of ourselves. And, and I think um, that kind of fed into this idea that, you know, you have to work hard and earn your own living. You have to take care of yourself. And, one of the evils of this socialistic Marxist view is that people are just given handouts instead of having to actually work for them. And that's wrong. That's, that's not the way that we do things. You know, even giving, getting charity from others. Um, I remember a time where we came out of church on a Wednesday night and we got out to our station wagon and the back of the station wagon was full of groceries that somebody had given us. Hmm. Um, and we were grateful, but again, there was like, there was something wrong with us because we needed help from others. Mm. Um, you know, even though my dad had gotten laid off through no fault of his own, even though the economic situation we were in had 
nothing to do with our ability to work or our willingness to work, there was still there was still this sense of shame, I think, that as I got older, just kind of solidified in the culture that we're in, where everyone should work for their own selves and not accept help from others. And uh, that kind of became the basis for my idea that government handouts are bad and you shouldn't accept them. And of course, Marxism is predicated on everything is a government handout and Mm. nobody actually has to work hard. And it's just, you know, produces laziness or undeserved things in life. And, and so I, I think that was more dominant in my mind back in those days than any explicitly political thing or any explicitly economic view of the world. It was just that sense that it's not good for you to accept handouts. Sounds like what you're saying is, you know, you just kind of, you kind of grew up with this stuff um, and never really thought to question it, or at least for a while, um, which, you know, has been a kind of a common theme <laughs> among a lot of my guests on this show. But, you know, I, I presume that at some point, if you, you know, you get through college and you start teaching this stuff, I mean, it's at some point you must have, claimed it as your own, at least to an extent. Yeah, I, I definitely did. And um, I was looking back. So so when I started teaching in the early 2000, 2001 is when I first started teaching. And it was a couple years later, so around 2004, that I actually got a blog because that's what everyone did back in that's those days. Well, you days, did in 2004, right? yeah. <laughs> exactly. You got, you got, I had my little blog spot blog. I don't want to say I worked really hard at it. Um, cause I probably didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was looking back and I think in 2014, I had maybe 300 posts for the entire year. And a lot of them were just like, I would post a clip from a news article and then have maybe a paragraph of commentary on there. Um, I think that's most what most of blogs which, were. <laughs> that's true. Well, there were these other blogs where, um, you know, these conservative writers that I very much looked up to during the day, people like Hugh Hewitt and Dennis Prager and Charles Krotheimer and all these others that, you know, all these National Review guys like Jonah Goldberg and these these people now that I don't have much tolerance for. But back in the day, I just thought, man, these guys are great. And I, I strove to be like them, although I didn't really have time to kind of write long articles. And I didn't really have the journalistic or, or uh, writing background to do what they did. So it was more kind of distilling my thoughts into a couple sentences. Um, but I would have loved to have had a longer blog post. And been more of a a thing where I got noticed and people linked to my blog and all the things that would have thrilled me back in the day. And so I think during that time, yes, I definitely um, claimed those ideologies as my own, even if I hadn't really studied or thought through them extensively. It, it, it was that thing where I'd grown up with this. I had been passed down these ideas. And I did, you know, I did do some studying in college, but it was more like, we're going to give you all these ideas and you need to remember them and be able to, and that was pretty much it. There wasn't as much thinking through it as it was just them handing me these ideas. 
and so during that time period, I, I was, you know, very, uh, I wouldn't say aggressive, but, but very, um, dedicated to that, to defending in, in whatever little way I could, these ideas and, and propagating these ideas, if not making, you know, long intellectual arguments for them, it was just reiterating the fact that, yes, we know this is true. We know capitalism is better. And there's still these Marxist ideas that are threatening to take away our freedoms. And, and so I've got to defend in whatever little way I can, our, our country and our kids from getting these ideas. So I guess in that sense, I claimed it, but, but again, I don't know if I had really thought through them intellectually and really understood all the nuances of either of any of these economic ideas. Yeah. I mean, you're making it sound like you just never really engaged at all with serious critiques of laissez-faire economics, like a into your adult years. I mean, is that, is that accurate or is that? No, I think that is accurate. Um, and whatever criticism I encountered, it would have been through the lens of, you know, a national review article where uh-huh. they were, where it was very polemical and wh- whatever, um, distillation there was of the critique, it was through that polemical lens. And so mm-hmm. I wasn't, engaging with the ideas i was engaging with whatever straw man or or whatever the way these conservative writers chose to portray the critique um but as far as reading books or articles that actually presented these ideas no i don't i don't think i did i mean i did at that time so that was back when um the west wing was kind of in full swing on Uh tv and i did watch the show and and i appreciated the artistry of the show but i would just kind of roll my eyes at some of the the politics the ideology (laughs) that was spouted to be frank i probably still would today um (laughs) as much as i enjoy the show i don't know that aaron sorkin is the best person the best source for deep insightful critiques <laughs> but i mean it was definitely a left-leaning ideological show but i don't know if it was like i said a really substantial critique of some of the ideas that i held very dearly at that time and i can honestly say i've never watched the west wing so i have no opinions one way or the other <laughs> well that's probably safe for you yeah yeah um Let's. I mean, let's keep it moving. What? What? When did you first encounter uh, serious criticism of 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 Reaganomics or whatever? When did you first start to question your presuppositions? So, I, I think it was uh, kind of an indirect way. So during that time period where I was, I'd gotten laid off. I was going back to school, and I was. I've, tried to remember this in the past and I can't exactly say why, but for a period from maybe 2007 to, I don't know, in the early 2010s, I pretty much totally disengaged from politics, totally disengaged from current events. Um, didn't really pay attention to anything that's going on in the world. Um, I don't think I voted in any election from, 
2008 through 2014, maybe. Hmm. And I just didn't pay attention. I mean, I knew big things were, were going on. Maybe the first time, so even though I was pretty much disengaged from politics and current events at that time, at the, the last school that I taught at, the school that I got laid off from, um, there were actually Democrats that <laughs> taught at the school. And that was probably the first time in my life that I encountered a um, Christian who was also a Democrat, who would actually vote for a Democrat. <laughs> um, I didn't really have any discussion with them, but simply the fact that knowing that, hey, you could be a Christian and a Democrat was kind of new to me. Hmm. And I don't want to overstate it, what that did for me. I'd like to say that kind of set a little seed in my mind that would later germinate. I don't think that's entirely true, but it is interesting to me that the very first time I encountered a Christian that did not hold those strict conservative beliefs was in my late 20s, early 30s. Um, so, so I had this long period where I pretty much totally disengaged. And I don't know exactly what that did for me. I, I'd like to think that it was almost like this purification time where some of the um, intense beliefs I held were kind of able to settle down. And when I eventually did start reengaging in current events, which would have been a little before 2014, um, so maybe 2012, around that time period, where I had gotten back into Facebook and um, started encountering other Christians, not necessarily from a from different political viewpoints, but from different backgrounds. And, it, and that was actually the time I first encountered you, Luke, through the the CAPCA forum, the Christ and Pop Culture Forum. Yeah. Um, which introduced me to all these other people that most of which are still conservative, but had such a broader engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. And um, there's very few leftists in that Kapka group. Um, But the simple fact that there were people in that group that were not so tied to these polemical uh, conservative beliefs kind of showed me that you could think broader, that you could engage in these cultural, political, ideological ideas and didn't have to be so tied to one viewpoint. But I think really the catalyst for me was in 2014, the the murder of Michael Brown mm-hmm. um, and all the unrest that happened in Ferguson. Um, what that did for me is open my eyes to the idea of injustice in the world. Mm. Um, because in, in a very, that year was such a tumultuous year with racial, all, all the tension there, because in that short period of, period of time, you had the killing of Michael Brown, of Eric Garner, of John Crawford, of um, Tamir Rice. And, and I started noticing those things, things that I would not have paid attention to before because I had been more open because of that slow reintroduction to society. I think I was more willing to look at a broad range of viewpoints. Hmm. And so, but when all those things hit, um, it really, it really struck me as, wow, there's, there's injustice in the world. People's experiences are not the same. Mm -hmm. Somebody can be doing nothing wrong 
and yet still be treated horribly and just and justly. And um, maybe for the for the first time in my my life, I really had to face the fact that what I accepted, one of the basic ideas that I had kind of talked about earlier of my capitalistic belief was this this idea in meritocracy, the idea that if you work hard, you're going to be rewarded for that. And this was a, a subtle blow, an indirect blow to that, but but nonetheless, a blow to the idea that that you were rewarded for your behavior, that you were rewarded for hard work and all these things. Mm-hmm. And so having then that idea that there is injustice in the world kind of led me down a whole line of looking more into all the racial injustice, not only in the present, but also in the past and listening to you know, specifically black voices and what they were saying about their experience in America. And, and as I listened to those, that broader range of voices than I ever had before, that started leading me into these different corners. And there wasn't a direct path from listening to the voices to looking at economic injustice, but I don't think I would have ever have started questioning the, those ideas of economics that I held were it not for those events back in 2014. And then, um, of course, the election of 2016, I think, shook up a lot of things mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people. But that just kind of further frustrated and, and showed me that all these ideas about progress and equality and justice and whatever I ideas I had was still kind of holding on to at the time kind of went out the door um, during that election. And it's kind of been since that, that those events in 2016, where I've really started to intentionally look at seek out voices that are critiquing our economic system that, that are critiquing, this view of capitalism because of everything that had gone up to that point. Now I was much more willing to actually look at explicitly Marxist voices and, mm-hmm. and try to see what there was to that critique and realize that so much of what I'd been told about what Marxism was and, and even who Marx was. I mean, when I went to, I remember having this, and even teaching the idea that, you know, Karl Marx was just this lazy guy who <laughs> did the equivalent of sleeping on people's couches back in the 18, mid 1800s <laughs> while he was writing his books. And all his ideas were based on the idea of that he didn't want to have to work hard and wanted all these things handed to him. And so he wrote this this impenetrable, untenable tome called Capital that... <laughs> put his beliefs that nobody could actually ever um, implement because it was just this ridiculous, this ridiculous arcane philosophy. And that's pretty much all I knew about him. (laughs) Um, But because I was now at a stage in my life where I was listening to voices that I had never listened to before. And um, as I mentioned, I met some people through Facebook um, and I had gotten more involved in Twitter and with all the horrible things that we can say about those platforms, and there's definitely a lot of horrible things that those have brought in the world. One of the things that they allowed me to do was have access to voices that I would never have had access to before. Mm-hmm. And so then connecting or following people online that that were 
some of them were just, you know, might be full out Marxists. But then I started learning that, oh, there are Christians that hold these ideas, these Marxist ideas, these anti-capitalistic critiques. Mm-hmm. And that really intrigued me and, and helped me to realize that anti-capitalistic Marxist critiques can actually come from a Christian perspective, can actually come from a biblical perspective. And and then, you know, you start I started paying attention to people like Dorothy Day and Oscar Romero and um, Gustavo Gutierrez and these liberation theologians in Latin America. And it just seemed like a floodgate of all these voices that are critiquing the not just the American capitalistic system, but the entire international capitalistic system and kind of the colonial system that it came out of. And um, hearing these voices that again, are coming from a biblical foundation, a a Christian tradition that fall right in line with some of the things that Marx was saying, some of the critiques that he had and the evaluations he had of capitalism has just drawn me further and further along this road and further and further away from these capitalistic beliefs that I had just accepted for so much of my life. I want to back up just a little bit. Um, cause you said something in there that I'm, I'm pretty curious about. Um, you mentioned that you just kind of disengaged from, um, politics and current events for, you said 2007 to 2014 or so. Um, I'm just curious, was there any particular reason for that? Was that a conscious thing? What was going on there? It wasn't a, de- a conscious decision, but, but there was a conscious effort, I guess, to say just to avoid all those things. And, mm. I don't know why it was. I I think it was just the turmoil my my personal life was in at the time um, with having been fired from a job, having to look for a new job, getting a new job, having that for a year, being laid off and having to completely change my career direction. I I don't know. There's just so much going on. And and I, I don't know. I just didn't have any interest in seeking out current events and yeah. politics and stuff like that. And, and it, I, I don't know what it was. Cause so back in my teaching days, I was super into um, college basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, I followed it. I'd watch eight to 10 games every week. And, you know, I could name you most players on most of the best teams and I would follow all the rankings and stuff. And I was just super deep into it. And, kind of around the same time i just completely lost interest in that mm-hmm. as well so i just think it was a part of a broader change in my life where the the things i wanted to focus on almost completely changed mm-hmm. and i started reading a lot more I, i'd always been a reader but but i started reading more intentionally and and more deeply than i had and so what kinds of things did you read then? Um, I read some biographies. I read a lot of classic. That was the time I, I finally got around to reading stuff like the the Odyssey and the Iliad and mm-hmm. the Aeneid. And I tried to get through some classic literature. Um, I read some, you know, some French novelists and some Russian. I'd always been interested in Russian novelists, but because there was that year or so where I was not working. Um, my wife was working full-time supporting us and 
I was kind of taking care of the kids. So I finally had time to, you know, read War and Peace and Anna Karenina. And for some reason, I still have not been able to identify my interests and passions just almost completely changed during those years. Can I float a theory and you can tell me if this is right, right or wrong? No, go for it. Um, the, what I hear is, you know, you got laid off from your job. Um, and that was, if that was 2007, that was right around the time the economy was completely tanking, you know, after eight years or whatever of uh, <laughs> Republican economic policies. What I'm thinking is if, if your whole political engagement was devoted to writing defenses of capitalism, <laughs> right, and then, you know, you lose your job for, for no reason, you know, um, maybe maybe subconsciously or, or, or otherwise, you're suddenly um, feeling alienated from the very idea of, of a meritocracy. <laughs> maybe I'm over. Maybe I'm over psychologizing. Maybe I'm maybe I'm trying to make everything fit neatly into this narrative. But that's that's where my mind goes when I hear that. Yeah, I, I that that might work. But because I was so disengaged, I really wasn't aware of the to a great extent of the housing crisis and the, and the economic collapse of 2008. Okay. Before I got laid off and went back to school, it was 2007 that I had gone fired from my job. Um, and that was like a, we, we had just bought our first house mm. my, um, in April of 2007, you know, kind of at the peak of the housing market. We had a fixed rate loan. We couldn't afford the house once I got laid off. And somehow we were able to hold on to our house we went through like three or four different uh loan modifications that allowed us to keep the house um but yeah i i wasn't aware at the time of all the turmoil that was going on around me because at at that time my head was some things had already started i'd already had some turmoil and change in my personal life and so i think maybe that was kind of why i now that I think of it and talk about it, maybe that's why I disengaged because I had the the crisis of losing a job and not being able to get a job. And um, my wife was working um, full time to support the family and I was kind of taking care of the kids and taking them to school. And so I think I just put my head down to focus on those things. So I think that was more of it. My awareness of what happened in 2008 came much, much later. That came kind of in the last few years mm. as, as I became more aware of the inequality in the world. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I was definitely not aware of all those things back in 2008 when they were occurring. All right. So 2007 to 2014 or so, you're disengaged from politics, reading a lot of books, which I can sympathize with because that's kind of where I've been <laughs> ever since 2016. Yeah, um, we I, I felt like there's kind of been a there's a jung we've reached a juncture where the truth no longer matters. <laughs> My opinion yeah. of the truth no longer matters. There's no benefit to me trying to keep abreast of the truth. <laughs> so. I've started doing everything I can to ignore the news and reading more books. Um, so that's, yeah, I can relate to that. 
Um, so you're reading all these books. Is I mean, did you get around? Is this when you finally got around to reading some Karl Marx, or what? What happened there? No, but like I said, the the transition to or the awareness of some economic inequality, the awareness of Marx as a legitimate and valuable critique of capitalism had not quite happened yet. As much as I'd like to say I um, am moving towards Marxism, I still haven't read Marx himself. Um, I've read the Communist Manifesto, which is you know fairly short and easy. Yeah. Um, I've read some at least one book kind of defending Marx against some of the common critiques of him, but I still you know haven't had time to focus on reading him in particular, or even like a summary of him. I know there's some, you know, pretty good books that try to summarize his, his thinking, his ideology. Um, and I'm still a fairly voracious reader, um, averaging about 20 to 30 books a year. And I have so, such a broad interest that there's always books about a huge variety of category of, a, a huge variety of topics that I want to read. I want to dive deep into, and I just don't, there's not enough time in the world. Um, so most of my engagement are through, um, like I said, through Twitter or through articles um, or through listening to podcasts or, or if it's not explicit Marcus, uh, Marxist ideas, it's more generically anti-capitalistic critiques that i've kind of held on to and and paid attention to can we get um i mean can we get a little more specific about this like what specifically are some of the some of the critiques of capitalism that you relate to so one of the things um i've come to accept or realize is that the type of world that capitalism needs in order to thrive is not the type of world that humans can thrive in. Hmm. Um, more and more, I'm beginning to think those those are opposite goals. And so, in order for capitalism needs, in order for capitalism to thrive, it needs everything to be a commodity. It needs to everything to be something that can be bought or sold um, at market value. And the only thing that market the market values is how much it can then resell that for Mm. um you know market the mark the companies buy labor for us as as cheap as they can because they they have no interest in um in helping us out because they only legally are accountable to their shareholders and the shareholders only want to see their stock prices go up so anything they can do to maximize those stock prices whether it's you know paying their employees as little as possible, or if the workers start to demand too many, too much money, um, in order to live, then they'll find a country somewhere else where people are willing to buy sell their labor for so much less, and so everything becomes a commodity, and that's just not how humans are are gonna thrive. Um, there's a big difference between working, you, you know, in in Christianity, and and you hear a lot of talk about the value of labor. And one one thing that has not changed in all my 
views is that labor is a good thing. It, it is good to work. It is good to create something. But what capitalism does is you have to work to survive. You have to sell your labor in order to buy the food and all these other things to survive. Everything comes down to a matter of just being able to survive and get by. And there's those few lucky people that are able to do a little bit above that, but the vast majority of people are just working paycheck to paycheck. There's a book I read about a year ago called Why Marx Was Right by this uh, professor named Terry Eagleton. And one of the things he says that Marx envisioned is it's not this utopia where everything's perfect and everyone gets along and everybody shares everything. Um, That's not what Marx was about. He envisioned a world in which people's basic needs were provided for so that then they were free to do what made life better for everyone else. They were free to engage in whatever interests they had, that their work actually meant something more than just purchasing survival. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think this decades of people just working to survive, working to keep their head above water, is not just trying on us, but that's that's contrary to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think humans flourish in a culture, in an environment where their labor means something, where, where it's giving something to the world. And I just don't think that's the world that capitalism can survive in. The little aphorism I've said before is one of the things that this Reaganomics, the trickle-down economics has said is that a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And I'll agree that's true, but that's only good if you have a boat. <laughs> um, but it seems like the most people in a capitalistic society don't have a boat. So the rising tide just means that they drown or they have to struggle to keep their head above. They have to work all the more hard to keep above water. And I don't think that humans can thrive when when they're simply trying to survive, when they're simply trying to put, put food on the table, when one car accident or one health condition can devastate them. And, and I've seen that in my family. Um, one of the things that our family's had to struggle with is um, my younger sister has had health problems her entire life. When she was 18 months old, they discovered a couple tumors on her back. They were benign, thankfully, but the operations to have them removed were, you know, obviously very costly. She's had other continuing back problems even to this day. When my family first started having to take her to the Children's Hospital in Denver in order to get treated, that was right around the same time that my dad was laid off from his uh, newspaper job back in the mid-80s. I honestly have no idea how we made it through that time. Mm. I I know we had a house, uh, the house we lived in, um, the house that my parents had built that we loved that was foreclosed and we had to rent a house for several years. But it was a hard time. And those those medical illnesses, we, of course, had no control over. And for people to live where any accident, anything outside of their control or the 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 whim of the owner of the company who decides they're going to lay off half the company because whatever reason, and then the people are struggling. You know, when I was let off from the school, I have enough confidence that the administration at the school weren't doing it out of spite. They were doing it because there was not enough 
kids going to the school and they just simply didn't have the money and they had to make that decision for which teachers they could leave they could let go of that weren't essential to running the school so i know it wasn't a malicious decision but still the fact that your life and whether or not you can put food on the table for your family is dependent on so many issues outside of your control and that people are not able to focus on adding things that make for the flourishing of all but are so caught up in that daily survival, that week-to-week, paycheck-paycheck survival. That, that's not what flourishing is about. But it, again, that's the type of environment that capitalism needs in order for it to thrive, in order for it to be to grow and to continue to grow. So uh, when you first started uh, questioning your original beliefs, how did that feel? It didn't feel too bad. I, because I had been in that period of disengagement, because I think I'd had that long period where I didn't feel the need to defend those mm. beliefs, they'd kind of settled down. So it, it wasn't like a, um, it, it, it wasn't something precious to me at the time. I mean, I think I still had those ideas, but they, they had so um, cooled off that it, it wasn't extremely painful. And because it felt pretty gradual, too, that it wasn't like all of a sudden I had this epiphany that, oh, man, this capitalistic system is probably not the best for humans. It, it was it, it was built off of my sense of, wow, there's a lot of injustice in the world because it was focused on you know, the literal murder of unarmed black men in America because it was realizing the long history of racial injustice in America that was a little more distant from me and, and easier to accept. I mean, it's it's hard not to deny that black people have been horribly mistreated in American history. What was newer to me is how that mistreatment was more, way more recent than I would have thought of 10 years ago. Mm. That it's happening now. But because I had that kind of that, it's not really a foundation, but because I had already accepted that there's injustice in America and that not everyone's given a fair treatment, it wasn't a, a big leap to then look at some of the underlying systems and realize that, in my opinion, they're built off of exploitation. They're built off of inequity. And so... Because those more ardent beliefs of my youth had cooled and kind of lost a lot of their luster, and because it was more gradual and based on you know some of the things I'm seeing on on these videos that were being passed around on the internet, it, it was it seemed like the next logical step mm-hmm. to start critiquing what I before accepted as our basic economic system as being good. It it just felt natural and obvious by the time I had started looking at them mm. and questioning those former beliefs. Mm. Okay, let me ask you this. <laughs> and I don't know if I I don't know if I agree with the premise of this question or not, but I, I, I do know that um more conservative listeners will probably appreciate me asking you this um my thing with marx (laughs) or at least one of the common critiques of marx you hear is um right or at least partially right in identifying the problem um that leads to injustice right that yes uh power protects power capital protects capital 
um, the powerful tend to exploit the weak. But did he have any real solutions? <laughs> like, is it, I mean, is, is, is there a solution in Marxism or is it just a critique? I mean, because the classic, you know, I mean, obvious, obviously, if you want to paint Marx as short on solutions, it's not that hard to point at, you know, the Soviet Union and what a disaster that was. Um, so is, I mean, is, is there a, is there a solution there or is it just a critique of capitalism? I think that that it is a valid question, but uh, it also is not a valid question. Okay. I think that's one of the ways that power protects itself mm-hmm. is by saying, well, if you're going to critique us, well, then you have to offer up an alternative. Okay. And I do agree that alternatives that you, you should have an alternative, but I don't I don't think you necessarily have to have a um, alternative when you make the critique. If your if your house is on fire, you don't have to show the firemen that you have a plan for how you're going to rebuild the house once they get the fire out. I mean, you have the immediate goal of getting the fire out, of stopping what's causing the harm to the structure. And then you can think, okay, now how are we going to rebuild? And, and, and I think that we're at a particular time where more and more we're seeing some of these gross injustices. And it, it's not just the injustices. It's not just that, you know, Jeff Bezos can buy a fifth home in Washington, D.C. that has 25 bathrooms. Well, his employees literally don't get bathroom breaks. <laughs> yeah, well, his, his empl- employers are peeing in bottles because they don't have bathroom breaks. I mean, that's bad but again it's the idea that the the environment in which capitalism these capitalistic structures flourish is one in which humans can't we we have to look at the toll the anxiety the stress the suicide rate the the opioid epidemic isn't directly related to capitalism but it's not it's there is an indirect relation there i think so i think there are times you know where there's something that's causing harm that you don't automatically have to have a alternative in order to offer up a critique of something that said i do think that there are more alternatives that um marx has offered up than most people give him credit for um i'll again talk about the book why marx was right by um, Terry Eagleton, that's one of the chapters, sure. is he talks about the fact that actually Marx did think through that through, that giving more democratic power to the workers, that taking away some of the power, the power from the oligarchy, from the Plutoc- the plutocracy, whoever you want to call it, these few people that are able to make the decisions for everybody, and these few people that all are able to benefit from those decisions, and giving more power to to the people, um, I think that is a solution. It's not entirely clear how that's going to work out. And yes, there's going to be a lot of unanswered questions, but I think there is a way forward by dismantling some of the systems that we have and replacing them with more democracy with, with giving people more of a say mm-hmm. empowering unions and, and empowering the ability for people to organize and actually have a say in what is being done with their labor and the products that they produce is going to have some some effects we, we don't have to have necessarily a centralized government we don't necessarily have to nationalize everything and put it in one central authority there's there's a lot of ways that you can do it 
Um, so I do think there are a lot of critiques and, and solutions out there that often get dismissed as utopic. One of the things that I've slowly realized is the capitalistic utopia is no less out of reach than what gets presented as the Marxist utopia. Mm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things Terry Eagleton points out is that Marx did not think life was going to be perfect without any problems if we're able to dismantle this capitalistic system. But at least there would be some equity. At least there would be some, there would be more democracy and people would have more freedom over their, the outcome of their lives. I think what doesn't get pointed out as much is, is that Reagan idea that if you know these, you allow tax breaks for the rich, and that's going to somehow trickle down and help everybody out. Mm-hmm. Um, so many of the promises of the Reagan era, of you know the American dream, and all these things that we'll be able to, the American family will be able to achieve if we have this laissez-faire, this these low income taxes, these deregulation. It's just going to, you know. It's almost like they think it's it'll just work itself out, but they don't get the critique that the Marxists do when they don't have as <laughs> they don't have as many solutions to offer. It's just like give tax breaks and then it'll all kind of work itself out in the end. There's extremes on each side where you don't have the solutions ready at hand. It's more make the change and then we'll see what happens afterwards. Sure. Let's go on. Um this is something I, I try to ask all my guests, which is, do you have a coming out story? <laughs> is there Was there a moment when you had to uh, tell everyone your beliefs have changed? Um, I mean, I'm particularly interested in, you know, the people you grew up around, um, parents, school friends, teachers, anything like that. Um, no, not really, because it's been kind of gradual and, and because even in the last year or so, it's become more intense. Tense, I guess you would say, or more focused. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still trying to figure out ways to articulate that, um, and especially given the climate. Most of the time, the my friends and people from the past are I interact with them through Facebook, and especially since the 2016 election, I've thought a lot about how I can present things that I think are important and and valuable in a way that people are not just going to immediately dismiss. And not just immediately turn off and realizing this very, very strong opinions people tend to still have about Marxist beliefs and Marxist ideas, you know, immediately associating with communist Russia and the gulags and all these horrible things. I, I don't know how helpful it's going to be for me to suddenly, you know, make the post or make the announcement over Thanksgiving dinner that, hey, guess what, friends, now I'm a Marxist. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other ways that I can introduce the critiques that I've kind of latched onto and undercut these these ideas in, in more winsome ways. And I don't I don't know if I have a solution to that yet. Um, that's something I'm still trying to work out. Mm. I think kind of um, stumping for Medicare for all is a is probably the best way that I have right mm-hmm. now. And, but even then, it, it's hard. Um, like with my family, so my my sister now with all the health problems, she she married a Canadian and now lives in Canada. And even though she continues to this day to have a lot of health problems, so much of that is covered by the Canadian healthcare mm-hmm. system. 
Um, I honestly don't know how they would be able to do it if they lived in the States because she would have so many medical expenses. Um, but even though it's been a great benefit to her, there's plenty of people in my family who still don't like the healthcare system and don't like any talk of socialized medicine in our country. And so even though I do think my best way to kind of produce how my to introduce how my thoughts have been changing is with Medicare for all or some some type of single payer healthcare system, even then there's going to be resistance to it. And so I'm still trying to think of how to engage with the people of my past and my present sure. and explain why I think what I think and what has changed about how I th- or how I've come to change the way I think about these things. All right. So aside from your uh, the new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? It's extremely helpful to broaden where you're looking and who you're listening to. Sure. Um, that almost none of us are helped by only listening to certain voices. And I don't even think it's a matter of looking at all these extreme conflicting viewpoints. Mm. You know, it's not that, well, let's see what what the deal with Nazism is. And maybe it's not as bad as as everyone thought. Um, I, I do think there's value in understanding history and understanding how some of these ideas come into play even if they're you know terrible white supremacist ideas i don't think you have to engage with them directly but i also don't think you should avoid trying to understand the history and context that allowed them to bring forth but i think it's also i I guess the diversity i'm talking about is is not just the same voices listening to people's stories listening to different narratives and being willing to acknowledge that we're all extremely limited in our perspective and experience. And so it's valuable for us to look to people whose experience and background is very different than ours. And and at the same, you know, to, to understand that maybe I've looked at something the same way in my entire life, maybe I'm missing something because I've not been willing to critique that viewpoint. And so listening to voices that are critical of your viewpoint, critical of where you have stood, even if it's been your entire life, even if it's something that you hold very dearly, there's value in listening to those who disagree with you. I I think that's the lesson, one of the big lessons I've learned through all Mm this. All right. I have um, three quick Final questions I ask all my guests, um, little philosophical questions, trying to trying to get at these, um, you know, a little bit of epistemology, a little bit of ontology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, what is identity? Does everybody have an identity? How do you know your identity? What would you say? Yeah, I, I wish I'd thought more about these specific <laughs> questions. I wish I'd had a dollar for every guest that said that. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have $10. Exactly. I would say that identity is, is is how you relate to the world around you, how you relate to your neighbor. Not to get back into it, but, but one of the people I've listened to recently is this pastor named John Thornton Jr., who started a new church in North Carolina. And one of the basic things that they do is they take the money they have to help pay off people's debts. Hmm. And, and he's a very you know outspoken anti-capitalist. Hmm. 
And one of the critiques he's made is that capitalism creates the, the need for debt in our lives. Mm-hmm. And but the more more than that, though, is it it forces us to treat each other in terms of our debt. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we relate to one another is, you know, having debt or being indebted to another person or this kind of goes back to the idea I said earlier of how we work, you know, providing for yourselves and not asking help for other people. Mm-hmm. The, the, those are all ways that we relate to the world around us. And any economic system is going to affect the way that we relate to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think so much of our identity is in how we relate to one another, mm-hmm. how we treat other people, how we think of one another, yeah. who, who we think of as, quote unquote, our people, you know, wh- where our, histor- our history comes from, our, our particular culture comes from, and, and how that compares to other people's culture. I, I think human interaction, human relations, obviously is very complex. We're not a single individual floating out in space that happens to bump into everybody, <laughs> other people every now and then. We, we are how we relate to other people. Mm-hmm. We can't know who we are unless we know how we relate to one another. Um, and so I think that's what I mean by identity is who we are compared to our neighbor and how we interact and how we treat them. Because mm-hmm. how we treat our neighbor is how we know who we are and how we fit into the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate that. That um, segues right into the second question, which is, um, you know, what is human nature? Um, do people create the system or does the system create people? Yeah, and I'd, I'd say the answer is yes. Hmm. We're very strongly influenced by the system, and yet the decisions that we make go back into the system to change it down the road mm. um, because we're, we're not isolated specks bouncing around in the universe because we only exist because we have relations or our identity is dependent on our relation to others. Human nature then is what we want to get from others and what we want to give to others. Mm. It, it, it's kind of our, that, that, basic need that we have to be around other people and both give things to them and get things from them. Sure. Which then goes back into what I was saying earlier about our identity. Yeah. So what do you think, what do, what do you think about truth? What is truth? How do we know truth? Can we know truth? I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the, the theme that I've said in the last few questions. It's in our relation to other people. The, the basic truth is that we are a communal creature, that we need others and others need us. And at, at some level, we, we, can, we can't know truth by ourselves. We, we can't know truth as much as our experiences are our own and as much as we can't completely understand other people's experiences, the only way we can know that we exist and that we're having experiences is through other people. The only way I know my experience is not yours is because we talk and interact. And I realize that I can't fully know what's going on in your life and you can't fully know what's going on in my life. So truth then is something that somehow comes about through our interactions with other people, hmm. through our interactions with the our fellow humans in this world and as we go through the world. That's not to say then that it's completely manufactured but that it's again only knowable through our interactions with others Mm -hmm. 
Well, this has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. Uh, thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. You can find me at LukeTHarrington.com or on Twitter at LukeTHarrington. There's a um, narrative in the conservative media right now of, oh no, why are young people embracing socialism? This is a disaster for the world. And I personally don't agree that it's a disaster for the world. Um, But even granting the point that it's a disaster for the world, I would say that those who dig capitalism would do well to take a second to ask themselves why are young people embracing socialism because weirdly that never seems to come into the conversation (laughs) it's always oh no if young people embrace socialism we'll end up like venezuela um and you know never mind that you can embrace capitalism and end up looking like albania um Albania was destroyed when it embraced capitalism after the fall of the Iron Curtain. You can uh, look that up if you want. It was economically devastated. Anyway, <laughs> but granting, even granting the point that socialism is a danger, um, wouldn't it behoove those who love capitalism to ask themselves the question of why it's gaining so much traction? It's not like young people woke up yesterday and said, I'm just going to be different today. I'm going to be a socialist. Like there are reasons that people are leaning towards socialism. And the main one is for anyone my age or younger, for our entire lives, basically, the word capitalism has meant that if you fail, sucks to be you. If rich people or big businesses fail, you are legally required to pass the hat for them. It's laissez-faire economics for the poor, socialism for the rich. And the result has been that my generation is the poorest generation since the Great Depression. All these headlines about millennials are killing Applebee's, millennials are killing diamonds. That stuff isn't happening by accident. It's not happening by random chance. It's not happening because people my age are a bunch of rebellious punks who hate tradition. It's because most of us have no disposable income to spend on anything, Um, regardless of whether Applebee's or Diamonds deserve to exist as consumer products, which they probably don't. Um, But those are the sort of things that you spend your disposable income on. And my generation has no disposable income. We look at our parents, the baby boomers, who benefited from all sorts of things, from the post-war economic boom to strong unions, affordable education, affordable health care, cheap real estate, easy to get loans. And what we see is a spoiled generation that benefited from all sorts of government programs climbed to the top of the world and rolled up the ladder behind them. Um, All the deregulation of the Reagan era and beyond may have led to short-term economic booms, but what it has led to in the long term 
is a permanently impoverished underclass and a handful of wealthy billionaires hiding all their money in Switzerland or elsewhere. And that's not just a political rant, that is a statistical reality. The middle class is being hollowed out. You can look it up. Now, I do think that most people who advocate for freer markets are acting in good faith. I don't think that most people in favor of a laissez-faire capitalist system are just greedy types who want to make money at the expense of others. I think they genuinely believe that capitalism is the best way to ensure prosperity for the most people. And as with anything else, it's possible that the people I disagree with are right. But if the pro-capitalists are right about this, then the burden is on them to convince the rest of us that capitalism is the best thing for all of us. If you're in government and you really believe that capitalism is the best economic system, it is your job and your duty to make sure that it works for everyone and not just the wealthy few. And at this moment, we have basically no one um, in power who is at all interested in doing that, which makes me wonder how many of the capitalists that are really making these arguments in good faith. That's about all I have to say about that. Um, really interesting conversation with Jeremy. The best thing I got out of it, I would say, is what he had to say about taking a break from the news cycle to read books. Um, you should do that. We all should do that. I would guess that 80 to 90% of our current political problems come from people just watching 24-hour news or getting into political arguments on Twitter or listening to talk radio all day. None of those things benefit from encouraging people to seriously engage with ideas, to think deeply from a historical perspective. All of those outlets make their money by keeping people perpetually enraged and only partially informed. Um, what you find if you uh, pick up a book or three is that none of our problems are new. None of the questions people have been asking haven't been asked before. And not everything is an emergency. Some things are emergencies, some things aren't. And even the things that are emergencies, not all of them are emergencies you can do anything about. And not all of them are emergencies that you can do anything about right now. It is okay to take a step back and give your mind a chance to relax and think about something a little bit deeper than the impending doom of society. <laughs> and don't just read nonfiction. Read fiction too, because fiction deals honestly with the question of what it means to be human, uh, which is something we all should be asking ourselves. So, since I just said that, I should probably make a plug for the last book I read, which was not a book I wrote, so this is not self-serving, or not very self-serving. Um, my good friend, KB Hoyle, uh, has a new novel coming out, and uh, she sent me a copy um, just in advance um, to write a blurb for her. And I was 
very impressed when I read it. It's kind of a young adult alien invasion novel, and alien alien invasion novels are obviously a dime a dozen, but this book is just so purely intensely human. Um, I shed half a dozen tears reading it, which that's a pretty big number of tears, right? Um, so that novel is called Hunter, and it is a prequel to her Breeder trilogy. And it should be out shortly after this episode of the podcast goes live. She told me end of November. So keep an eye out for that. Also, since I'm talking about KB Hoyle, here is the, the self-serving plug, which is that I am currently co-writing a novel with KB Hoyle live on the internet, um, improv style. I write a chapter. I put it out there without even showing it to her. And then she has to write a chapter and we go back and forth. So far, I've been told it's some of the funniest stuff I've ever written. It is a paranormal pirate adventure, and we are having a lot of fun with it. It's free to read at projectconarrative.com. Um, entirely supported by Patreon patrons. Um, if you become a Patreon patron, you'll have access to our podcast and our newsletter and a print copy of the book when it's written. Um, but yeah, projectconarrative.com. That's projectconarrative.com. You should go check it out. That's about all for this week. I want to thank Jeremy Doan for being on the show. He didn't really have anything to plug, but he said to tell you to read some Oscar Romero. So read some Oscar Romero, I guess. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Uh, check them out at ravencreeksc.com. They've got a couple other podcasts about the Bible and about movies. You can find me at luketharrington.com or tweet at me at luketharrington. I would love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And don't be afraid to change your mind. Mm-hmm.